Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry P. Arne joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, part of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. More episodes at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you find your audio. Also at the Hillsdale College Podcast Network, check out the radio-free Hillsdale Hour, the Hillsdale College K-12 Classical Education Podcast, the Larry P. Arn Show, and more, all at podcast.hillsdale.edu. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That music means the Hillsdale Dialogue is underway, where once a week I sit down, usually with Dr. Larry Arn, though he's been under the weather, but he's been back last week and this week, and we talk about something that lasts and something that endures, and occasionally we divert into politics, but we're not partisan at Hillsdale Dialogue or the Hillsdale College. This week we're back in the world crisis, and thanks to everyone who's been writing me about the fact that you went out and got a book you'd never heard of before. Dr. Arn's responsible for this, and I've got to tell you, Dr. Arn, Chapter 8, Ireland and the European Balance. I'm back to this. And I, I think it was much on my mind when the coup happened in the House two weeks ago because the, the coups remind me of the Irish, right? They held the balance of power. And one, and one time they would swing with the liberals and the other time they would swing the conservatives. And you never knew what they were going to do. Is my analogy that far off? Yeah, and think it's uh, that's exactly right. I I think about that a lot, and you know there was, you know, first of all, all politics is a mess, and free politics has its own way of being a mess. There are too many voices. There's always a mess, right? Well, this dysfunction in the House of Commons, which is the governing center of Britain until the bureaucracy took over, it 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 went on for a hundred years because the British. You know, they're dominating Ireland. And, you know, in earlier centuries, they were pretty tough on Ireland, very tough on Ireland. And there's a lot of resentment about that to this day. To this very day. Yeah. But that's right. But they didn't in modern times, they didn't have the heart simply to tyrannize. Them. And so they included them in the House of Commons. Right. They got to elect their members and join up. And then they messed with the House of Commons all the time. And, you know, in the end, by the way, they were successful because they made themselves so annoying that Winston Churchill separated from the politics of his father and helped to negotiate the the settlement after the First World War that let them go. And that was what what he complained of, was he, he admitted that wrong was done in Ireland. And it's worth stopping and saying what was thorny about Ireland. Northern Ireland was and is today Protestant. And Southern Ireland is Catholic. And they, and uh, as you know, Hugh, Catholics can be very despotic. No, I didn't say that. Uh, Well, I'm I'm actually uh, Orange Irish and Green Irish. You can't insult me or not insult me no matter what you say about Ireland. Because I got both sides. And and both of them have, you know, they're people, right? So they can be despotic. So... In in the, you know, Britain's ambitions to control Ireland, Churchill thought had become obsolete by early in the 20th century because Britain had become very large and Ireland was not so large. 
And therefore, it couldn't be so much a danger. And the particular danger that had recurred was European powers hostile to Britain using Scotland and Ireland at different times in different ways to threat, to build bases and constitute a threat on the borders of England. And so he thought that was less a problem, although the Irish Republic during the first, the Second World War was way too comfy with Hitler and hosted German submarines and their ports and stuff. Anyway, he, they didn't want to, you know, serious opinion in Britain was much less inclined to keep Ireland. Northern Ireland was different because they felt they had a debt of honor. They had, they, 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 they had taken control, they represented them, and Northern Ireland wanted to stay. And so they couldn't get out. It's hard to get out. Today, there's very controversial, right? They did Brexit. But what about Southern Ireland and Northern Ireland? And do they have to have a border there with Europe? And that's, that was the thorniest thing. And it went on, still goes on some. Well, what's fascinating, when he writes in Chapter 8 about Ireland and the European balance, the solution he was putting forward is the solution we haven't arrived at, which is never coerce Ulster and let the rest of the Republic Ireland be free. Churchill got there in the 20s and the 30s, but the rest of the country didn't get there until the Good Friday Agreement in the 90s. Yeah, that's right. And it's, you know, it's settled down a lot now. It's a lot better, but it's still a contemporary issue in some important ways. And, uh, and so the House of Commons in 1914... In August, when the war is about to descend, and remember, this is a different kind of war than the world has ever seen. Bigger, more intense, fiercer. We read Churchill writing of it, that it would uh, differed from the modern wars in the, uh, in the fierceness with which it was fought. It was like the ancient worlds, where they would sometimes kill everybody in a city. But it was different from the ancient worlds in the scale and the science that was brought to bear in it. And the world had never seen such a thing. And in the middle of this Irish debate about, about two districts in southern Northern Ireland, that means close to the border with Southern Ireland, Fermanagh and Tyrone, and the, you know, the whole cabinet is spending days, days arguing. Days, weeks, where months. The, where, the, where the border runs through those towns. And, uh, and, you know, and most of them never been there and would never go. So they're doing that. And then it's very riveting in this chapter because Edward Gray, who's a foreign minister whom Churchill admired very much, uh, he starts reading this note from Austria to Serbia. And the note is very hard. In fact, as it, and it sort of accumulates. At first... They're not paying much attention. Churchill isn't either. Churchill admits he's not paying attention. Yeah, and then it just, on it goes, and it accumulates this and then this and then this, and he says, I never heard such a note, right? And so the Archduke Ferdinand, the heir to the, uh, the Habsburg monarchy, was assassinated in Serbia, part of the... Austro-Hungarian Empire, 
And like almost all of the rest of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it was unhappy about something all the time. That that empire was like all politics. It was a mess. And, uh, you know, they're only relative messes. But um, so they killed him, and, and Austria decides to seize the opportunity. And so they give them an ultimatum. And the ultimatum included a lot of very radical things like uh, – you have to surrender all your border forts. Right. Because Serbia was an independent and, uh, country, even though a Serbian nationalist killed the Archduke in Kosovo. I say that for the Steelers fans. Semi-independent country. Still much under the influence of yes. Vienna. And, uh, and so it's a very draconian note. And then everybody knows, because they've been practicing their new kind. Of, we, we, we read in an earlier chapter in this same volume, where Churchill waked up to the to the fact that maybe there was a big European war brewing and changed his outlook in big ways. And, uh, and so people are used to thinking about that now. And that's gone on for about four years by 1914. And so people know if Austria attacks Serbia, Russia is probably going to attack Austria. Germany is going to attack Russia, but Germany can't get in a big war with France, with uh, Russia, with its back to France. France is going to get involved, too. And then England is going to get involved, all because of something that happened in a little town in Serbia. And people understand those steps. And, uh, and you know, it's it can, and it, Churchill himself, more than anybody else, has predicted what such a war would be like. But even he is shocked at what happened and how it grew. And it's about to get out of hand. And what's interesting to me is uh, the way Churchill tells the story is how intelligent everybody was. The Germans were trying to stop it. Not enough. You know, and they what they what they offered, so the a German diplomat Comes to see Churchill, other people too. But Churchill's Hold on to that, we're going to, going to a break. Yeah. I want people to hear the story of the German diplomat. On the eve of World War I, Germany sends a guy to sit down with Winston Churchill, the first Lord of the Admiralty, because nobody wants this war, and we get it anyway. Stay tuned, I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn. The Hillsdale Dialogue rolls along, and boy, you ought to be paying attention, because it sure sounds like 2023 to us. Stay tuned. Hey there, I'm Scott Bertram, and I'm the director of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. This show and all the other shows on the network are listener-supported. That means we hope for, we count on, frankly, we rely on the support of listeners like you to make our educational outreach possible. One of the best and most convenient ways to do so is joining the Liberty and Learning Society. That's our exclusive monthly giving group. And in this month of March, we are looking for 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society. When you join, you'll help defend liberty through education, and you'll make shows like this one possible far into the future. All you have to do is visit hillsdale.edu slash monthly and complete the secure online donation form. If you need to pause or stop your gift at some point, no problem. Just call us. One of our friendly students or staff will help you. But today, will you be one of the 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society in March? 
Go to hillsdale.edu slash monthly to join the Liberty and Learning Society today. Help us bring these shows to you and other Americans at hillsdale.edu slash monthly. I'm Hugh Hewitt. One of the things you have to understand about the Hilldale Dialogue is that we presuppose a lot of knowledge on the part of you, the audience, and Dr. Arne fills it in on how the British political system works. Winston Churchill is not the Home Secretary. He is not the Foreign Secretary. He's head of the Admiralty. Why do the Germans send somebody to talk to him, Dr. Arne? Well, uh, he was a big man. He was a show pony. He knew the Kaiser... He was engaging. He was good to talk to. And the British political system is, uh, you know, it's it's ruled by, a, at the peak of the British political system is a cabinet. Actually, now it's a bureaucracy, but never mind. And the cabinet has a prime minister, which means first among equals. It doesn't really mean superior. And the particular power that the prime minister has is he has a lot of power in deciding who to put into the government but that's limited, too, because you have to put your enemies in there. And it's just like Kevin McCarthy trying to save himself in recent days. And, you know, he needed a majority of the House of Representatives to vote for him for speaker. And eight or ten of his guys said they wouldn't. So how does he get the votes? To his credit, I'm praising him about this. He didn't go cultivate the Democrats. He didn't say... Uh, I will include you in my administration of the House in a different way than I'm doing if you'll vote for me. He didn't do that. And so he lost, right? Well, that's how you get to be Prime Minister of Britain, too. And that means that your cabinet will be made up of uh, extensively of people who might get your job if you fall because they have support in the House of Commons. And that's how you get support for your government in the House of Commons. So it, it works like that, right? And and at this time, Herbert Henry Asquith is prime minister, and he's a strong prime minister. But that doesn't mean that he can tell everybody what to do. And what you do, and there's many instances of it in this book, Churchill learns of something in his department, which is the Navy, that is of very great significance to the whole government policy. And so what he does is what they all do, tells the prime minister, Tell him soon. Let him know. And then second, he decides. You can bring something to the cabinet on your own if you're a member of it. But in the cases that Churchill relates in this chapter, Asquith said, we have to take this to the cabinet. And so the Germans made this offer to Churchill and separately and later to Sir Edward Grey, the foreign minister, the proper person to make it to. And what they said was, we would give you a guarantee that we wouldn't take any territory from France if Britain will stay out. So what they want, what they're proposing is basically a replay of the 1866 war that Bismarck and, and, and Kaiser Willem I, the father of the current Kaiser, and Bismarck is gone now, they waged to achieve the unity of the German state. And they fought Austria, and then they fought France. And the German, the treaty that made a unified Germany, the one we have today, that was signed in the Palace of Versailles 
over a defeated France in that war. And so that's a sign that the Germans were going into this thinking this will be like that. And if we can keep England out and if we can promise that we won't take any territory from France. In the First World War, they did take two two, two provinces from France. No, sorry. In the 1866 war, they did take two provinces from France. Franco-Prussian War. And yeah. Lorraine. Yeah. That's right. And they didn't want, uh, Bismarck didn't want to do that. But he couldn't stop it. And that was the so so. We won't take any this time, right? Because they're trying to keep Britain out and they're trying to confine the war. Now, if they didn't want it, why did they do it? Well, they're sitting there in the middle of Europe and they're worried because they're between Russia and France with England now allied with both of them. And they think they're kind of surrounded and they've got and they've got to hold on to Austria because they and Austria are big buddies. And we've got to keep Austria strong because they control the parts of Southern and Eastern Europe that are Slavic. That is to say, they, they're like the Russians. They, uh, they uh, write with the Cyrillic alphabet. Many of them, they're members of the Orthodox Church, not the Catholic Church. And so, the, and Russia is very interested in that part of the world, right? And so that competition down there, more to the south and the east, uh, which is not adjacent to Germany, that's very important to Germany because Austria is important to Germany. And you've got these alliances built up. And so uh, Austria was, in the way Churchill tells the story, and it's pretty much true, I think, um, Austria was the aggressive actor uh, because they were aggrieved. Their heir to the throne was assassinated on Serbian soil. And anyway, they're very worried because their empire is shaky. And here's a chance to discipline Serbia. And the first domino that falls is in Sarajevo. But Churchill, and we're going to come back to this, the general situation memo that he sends Christmas 1913 is really what we need in the United States today. Someone who actually understands dominoes do fall, and here's what happens when they fall. Dr. Larian will be right back. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. We're in Chapter 8 of this book, The World Crisis, Volume 1. Stay with us, America. back, America. Maybe the most used phrase that is misunderstood is strategic thinker. Dr. Arn is my guest. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Dr. Arn, I don't know that I've found, and it was new to me, pages 120 to page 122 of the Bloomsbury edition of the World Crisis, volume one, is just the reproduction of a memo that Winston Churchill wrote in December of 1913 on the general situation. Do you think anyone in the Biden administration could write such a memo today about the general situation? One doubts that there's anybody who could read it. <laughs> I agree. I, I, I don't think they yeah. understand that the chin bone is connected to the neck bone, which is connected to that shoulder bone. They just don't get it's all connected. Yeah. So uh, there's a lesson. This memo is steps they got to take because he's in charge of the Navy and what are we going to do? And, you know, you got to be, you know, it's the Navy is a very big thing. And it was the key to the British defense for 
several hundred years. And, and the first thing you got to worry about is the aggression toward war is coming from Austria and then to Germany. And Germany has built itself a big navy. Are they going to attack our navy of a sudden? Because if they could, they could change the strategic balance of the world because they've got a huge army and Britain's got a little army. If they, if Britain didn't have control of the sea, they could get their army to Britain. That would change everything. See, so he's got to protect the fleet. And there's a point that I, uh, people should understand in politics in, in it's very long, you know, starting in 1900, ending in 1961, when he retired from the House of Commons, Churchill always preferred to have a job with activity. He didn't much like being a general advisor kind of cabinet member. And that's a kind of lesson for people, by the way, because politics is very dangerous now. And, you know, we may all get hurt in fundamental ways here. But it's good to have some good work to do. It's not that. You know, you got to pay attention to your country and you got to learn and try to be a better citizen and help others to learn. But also it's great to have some rewarding work to do. I mean, I I value my job very much. It's fun. So far I'm able to do it. Uh, you know, you get to teach. Well, Churchill, you know, the grand strategy of the war, Churchill was probably better at that than anybody. He certainly wrote better about it than anybody else in the cabinet. But he wasn't in charge of that. He was given lots of advice and he was involved in everything. But the Navy, he writes down in his own hand, is it 17 points, I think? And and those are the things we got to do right now. And if we do that, the fleet will be safe to start with. And also, it can then go anywhere it wants to go. And the Germans won't know where it is or where it's going to go. And so he thought all that through and he feared all this. And he, you got another thing you got to remember about Churchill is he makes a huge record trying to stay predicting and then trying to stop both those world wars, trying to stop them urgently, deeply fearful. He thought this kind of war will consume everything and destroy the liberal nation nature of the society. And, and remember, I, I'm thinking of a general definition of that term liberal. It means that the motive force for the society comes from individual people and they earn and take care of themselves. That's the dream of America. That's what the American dream. And what means. you need to do that, and, what Churchill did, I want to read one paragraph and have you expand on it from this memo. This memo is uh, three pages long. And he sends it to some of the smartest people in the world, and he persuades them. And I think it's this paragraph. All the world is building ships of the greatest power, training officers and men, creating arsenals, and laying broad and deep the foundations of future permanent naval development and expansion. In every country, powerful interests and huge industries are growing up, which will render any check or cessation in the growth of navies increasingly difficult as time passes. Besides the great powers, there are many small states who are buying and building great ships of war and whose vessels may by purchase by some diplomatic combination or by duress be brought into the line against us. None of these powers need, like us, navies to defend their actual safety or independence. 
They build them so as to play a part in the world's affair. It is sport to them. It is death to us. I think the same thing can be said about the United States in 2023, Larry Arn. Yeah, that's right. We we see we have the advantage. I, I think now that uh, our strategic position and our nature is exactly like Britain's in 1900. I agree. Uh, Britain had a narrow, a narrow English Channel separating it from the from the continent. That channel was only 10,000 years old. So in other words, except for some changes in, in sea geography and the level of the seas, it would, have been, it would not have been an island. Most of its history, it's not. And, uh, and so, but it is an island. And that changes things because you get a big navy and you need it. And that's where you spend your money. And that means the king doesn't have a big army to call on to tell you what to do. Well, we're like that. We're off on a continent by ourselves. But, you know, we've now learned that the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean are not nearly as big as they used to be. We still have some critical distance. We should take advantage of that because everything connects to everything, as you just said. And that means that, uh, you know, the government is, if if you look at the Constitution of the United States, One of the places where it's so obvious that it aims for a liberal society is in Article 1, Section 8, when they say what the federal government is to do. It's a grant of power. Now, they're certainly making a bigger government, stronger government. They think it needs it. They think the states, some of them are becoming despotic, and the whole nation is a laughingstock. And where will we be if European powers take part of the territory on the continent, except we'll just turn into Europe? all these border problems and all that stuff. So they try to make a stronger government, but they limit it. And that means that they give the federal government 17 things to do. And of those nine conserve national defense. And the others are the guarantee of a national system of trade. So post office between got to do a post office. Yeah. Post office communication. See, Road, post office, post roads, bankruptcy, weights and measures, you know, something so we can borders, borders. That's right. And they and so they and then the other little mind, there's what those are the two things. And then there's one minor other minor thing, and that is the federal government gets to operate on the land where it has installations. So it doesn't own any territory except where it operates. So it owns the land the post offices are on. It owns the eventual capital, it owns military bases, and it can govern those without the states. So that's the scope of the federal government. And today, and you know, forever, into the post-Second World War period, defense spending was the great majority of the budget of the federal government. Now it's a small minority. And yet, as a percentage of the economy and the percent, you know, against all precedent adjusted for inflation, the federal government's budget is bigger than it's ever been. And what's it doing with the money? The answer is making rules, telling you and me what to do. And, you know, I think it should get out of that business. When we come uh, back, we're going to talk about what does the Chinese government think of the United States? Because it's very much the way the Kaiser considered Great Britain in 1914. And Xi Jinping may be suspecting, may be subject to the same 
misapprehensions about America that the Kaiser was about England in 1914. But we'll talk with Dr. Arn about that right after the break. Stay tuned, America. Hey there, I'm Scott Bertram, and I'm the director of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. This show and all the other shows on the network are listener-supported. That means we hope for, we count on, frankly, we rely on the support of listeners like you to make our educational outreach possible. One of the best and most convenient ways to do so is joining the Liberty and Learning Society. That's our exclusive monthly giving group. And in this month of March, we are looking for 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society. When you join, you'll help defend liberty through education, and you'll make shows like this one possible far into the future. All you have to do is visit hillsdale.edu slash monthly and complete the secure online donation form. If you need to pause or stop your gift at some point, no problem. Just call us. One of our friendly students or staff will help you. But today, will you be one of the 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society in March? Go to hillsdale.edu slash monthly to join the Liberty and Learning Society today. Help us bring these shows to you and other Americans at hillsdale.edu slash monthly. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Ron, I want to close Chapter 8 by reminding people that what Churchill said is that anxiety is caused in every friendly country. He made a speech in Parliament in April of 1914. Anxiety is caused in every friendly country by the belief that, for the time being, Great Britain cannot act. They do not know that at a touch of external difficulties or menace, all these fierce controversies should disappear for the time being, and we should all be brought into line and into tune. That's what happened do you think that's what would happen in the United States today? No, our our, our government is uh, not functioning. It's uh, no telling what they'll do. Uh, no telling whether they're telling the truth about what they're doing. I mean, I you know the intelligence agencies and the FBI are they need to purge themselves of partisan taint, and they need to do it avidly on a big scale because there is obvious breaches of the neutrality to which it's necessary for them to follow. So you can't trust all that anymore, really, and that's very dangerous, and we have to restore that trust. I mean, these woke generals, right, saying... You know, 10 years ago, even, if the woke movement broke on the country, the generals would say, you know, we're just into war fighting. And so we go where we're told and we fight where we are and we try to take the people with us who can fight the best. They should say that. And then, you know, they don't. Well, for 11 of the 14 last years, we have had President Obama and President Biden and then President Trump, who, like Lincoln, didn't get it right when it came to generals, did he? Well, it's hard to do, of course. And, yeah, I don't, uh, you know, there, there's a, war is a, a special thing. It's like anything else in one way. It's government policy. But it's a special kind of government policy because it's life and death, and the life and death of the nation can be at stake. 
And so the reason generals are so hard is that the test of them is in war. You know, you don't know till they fight. And, and then it's hard to tell when they fight because it's typical for a battle to be inconclusive. And uh, generals are, if you just think of the, uh, Lincoln had high hopes for General Joe Hooker. Uh, <laughs> but General, yeah. <laughs> General Joe Hooker. Fighting Joe. Get drunk in the saddle. Fighting Joe. He, uh, he maneuvered himself so that he was facing off against Lee in good order with a bigger army, and then he just froze in place. And then he, uh, he, he once wrote a dispatch to Lincoln, which Lincoln read out in the cabinet, and it signed off from my headquarters in the saddle. And Lincoln looked at the cabinet and said, General Hooker has his headquarters where his hindquarters are supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so poor Lincoln. How, how are you going to know they try? You uh, don't. You don't. I asked uh, you don't. Governor DeSantis about Afghanistan, and I will ask every Republican about Afghanistan. We haven't looked at what happened there yet, Larry Arndt. We looked at 9-11. We've had the CIA commission. We have not looked at what happened in the Pentagon. Why do you think that well, is? Well, the press is, uh, you know, not doing its job, right? The press is mostly partisan press now. Even the ostensibly nonpartisan parts, they're on a side. And that's dangerous, right? And uh, instead, you know, they should be independent. I, You know, we get more press coverage than we wish for these days and most of it's favorable but you know a lot of it is but you know the, when the big guys get after us they're mean and on the other hand there some parts are more responsible than others you know i've been profiled in the new yorker so they took a lot of care with that and we've been written up a few times in the new york times and they follow what we do now and at least they try to get a quote from somebody have some outside evidence for what they say I don't think the articles are always very good or fair, but they're at least making the outward effort. A lot of these places don't even try anymore. No, they don't. You know, by the way, the New Yorker went after Alliance Defending Freedom last week. So they have figured out who's winning in the United States, Hillsdale and the Alliance Defending Freedom. And they're going after you both in the New Yorker, which signals the rest of the partisan press to abandon the appearance of fairness and just go after you. We'll be back next week. Yeah. We're going to keep talking about church. We're going to keep talking about the world crisis because the next chapter is about six days in July 2014. 1914. 1914. 20, July 24 to July 30th next week, America. Don't miss the Hilldale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues, part of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. More episodes at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you find your audio. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.